everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, Brian. Welcome back. Hello, Brandon. I think we should talk about surgeons. Oh. Or at least surgical ICUs. One of my favorite both topics. Of, yeah, both of us um, have worked in SICUs or at least managed surgical patients in ICUs for a, a significant part of our time in critical care. And I feel like this is an area that is not super intuitive to people who are not versed in the workflows involved here. Uh, most people, I imagine, think about patients who get very sick and they show up in the emergency department with a uh, sepsis or something. And because they're so sick, they go to the ICU and get taken care of there. And that's that's more of a medical ICU. Um, now, not everywhere has specialized ICUs like this. You could have one big ICU or several ICUs, but most larger places um, kind of dedicate their ICUs to different purposes with the idea that specialized staff are better at specific things. And that can go all the way down to neuro ICUs, surgical ICUs, cardiac surgery ICUs, burn ICUs, um, depending on how big you are and how specialized. But I think fundamentally medical versus surgical critical care tends to be a little different. And um, one of the aspects of the surgical side is that typically if there are surgeons involved, and this may mean that they operated on the patient, or it may just mean that they are following them for some sort of surgical issue, they are not the ICU team. In other words, there are at least two different teams seeing the patient. One is the surgeons and one is you or I, uh, and usually some kind of an intensivist as the critical care service. And this kind of creates some interesting dynamics because anytime there's more than one person in a room, there's the opportunity for them to disagree on some things. So I, I think the the kind of place to start with is just the ways you can create these these ICU models. And one is a the sort of quote open versus closed ICU model. Brian, what first of all, what are those and what do you guys have? Yeah, so so the open model is basically any patient that gets admitted to the ICU is admitted to their primary service uh, and they may or may not provide critical care. Some some surgeons feel comfortable with that. There are surgical critical care fellowships that surgeons can do whether or not they actually go into critical care. I know, I know of a couple of surgeons in private practice, for example, who do mostly, you know, routine general surgery type operations, but they did a critical care fellowship at one point in their lives and they feel pretty comfortable managing the basics. Uh, then there are surgical critical care teams. These are typically the trauma guys in my experience um, where they admit the patients to their service and manage them throughout, including their critical care. Now, like I said, in my experience, these tend to be the trauma patients. So they're admitted to the trauma service, uh, which does follow them throughout their stay, but also provides critical care. A closed model, which is, in my experience, very uncommon, if not, I don't know that I've ever seen it really in the surgical world. It's much more common in the medical world is the one where there is an ICU team that takes over primary management of a patient when they're admitted to the ICU. 
I think much more common, at least in my experience, is what I would consider a quasi-open model, uh, where the primary surgical service maintains the patient and is responsible for the sort of the primary team functions, but they consult a critical care team either when they feel like they need help, i.e., yeah, there's a patient in the ICU, but they're not really that sick and we're okay with handling it, but now they're a little sicker, so we would like some help. Or uh, something that's common also is this sort of automatic consult uh, where any patient that's admitted to the ICU automatically gets followed by the ICU team uh, and sort of co-managed with the surgeons. I've worked in both of those types of environments. Um, and in the service I'm on right now, actually, is a little bit of both. So what I mean by that is we see patients in the surgical and the cardiothoracic ICU uh, from a handful of different services. The cardiothoracic ICU where I work now is split really into three uh, main teams, the cardiology team, which is run by cardiology and the cardiology critical care service. Then there's the cardiac surgery patients. They're seen by uh, a team from my division, uh, the anesthesia critical care division, but a different team than the one I'm on. Um, and then there's the thoracic surgery patients that fall under our surgical critical care service, which is which covers the thoracic surgery up there, but also more broadly the the non-trauma uh, patients in the surgical ICU. Now the thoracic surgery patients where I work, as well as the liver transplant patients in the SICU are sort of automatic consults. Any patient that those guys admit to the ICU, we automatically follow. Uh, and we kind of co-manage those patients. And at some point, those guys, the surgeons may want uh, their patients to remain in the ICU for various reasons that really don't have anything to do with acuity necessarily. Um, they Maybe they want frequent nursing checks or something like that. Uh, or they're on a medication that can't be handled outside the ICU, but they really don't need critical care services anymore, in which case we'll sort of step away. But then the, the majority of the services we provide are consults where the service consults us because they have a patient they're going to admit and they feel like they need help with. And this would be vascular surgery, colorectal surgery, surgeon, all those guys. And sometimes they'll admit patients to the ICU and not consult us because they feel like, well, we're going to put them in the ICU again. Like I said, they, we need frequent flap checks, for example. Plastics does this a lot. Uh, we need So they need frequent nursing care, but they really don't need critical care medicine services. Yeah, so there's, there's clearly a huge spectrum here. Um, all the way from kind of these extremes. The, well, a lot of this comes down to is what is almost more of a paperwork distinction, which is that every patient, at least in this country, has a primary provider and team and you know, some physician of record who is the kind of the ultimate authority on what happens to the patient. And then there are any number of consulting teams who are helping and weighing in, but technically, they're just providing a service or advice, and it's this primary person who is running the show. It, it just ends up being confusing when there are sort of gradations there. Now, most of the places I've worked are, I think, a little more closed than yours. Most of them, at least on paper, were closed units, meaning that the primary service for all the patients was the critical care team. Now, in the case of surgical patients, it's not like 
we would just run around doing whatever we wanted and ignore the surgeons. I mean, they, they have a, a close connection with their patient. And I mean, on a practical level, if you just did whatever you wanted, there would, there would be like political ramifications, meaning, yes, you could do it for that patient, but, you know, departments would start to talk to each other and to higher ups and be like, look, you know, I, I can't, you know, operate on these patients, for instance, if the ICU is going to take hold of them and do weird stuff to them after. There, there's kind of like practical problems. So it would end up like the critical care team is making 90% of the decisions, but the surgical team um, comes through and, and says, you know, what things are important to them. So maybe they round to their patients early in the morning and they come find you and say, hey, you know, we should do X, Y, and Z today. It's, you know, advance the diet, start DVT prophylaxis, you can go out of the ICU or whatever. And there are certain things that you, you typically know the surgeons care about. Things like the classic one is, are they ready to leave the ICU? Usually you need to get a thumbs up for that. You can't just send patients around, especially if they're going to the surgical team. And then maybe other things depending on the, the type of surgery. Um, but most of the care you're providing. So it looks like you're the primary team. And ultimately, maybe you are on paper or maybe they are on paper, but that may not correlate with who's doing most of the management. So there are a lot of gradations in here. And this is not necessarily just for surgical patients either. In the a truly open model, I mean, you could have a cardiologist who admits someone to the ICU under their service just because they need ICU level nursing care and things like that, but they manage them. And you could imagine how in the old days, that, that was how it always was because patients just get sick enough. They need to be geographically in different places, different services, but you're still taking care of them until critical care kind of emerged as its own specialty. <sighs> but I, I think you could probably imagine how this sometimes creates challenges. So um, it sounds like for your patients, how involved the surgical teams are and how many things they sort of care about versus things you can just kind of do on your own depends on the service. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And actually, in my experience with surgeons, even more, more so than with medical specialties, it even depends on the surgeon. Yeah. So there will be certain surgeons who want to be more hands-on. Uh, other surgeons will say, hey, listen, I did this operation uh, and I care about this aspect of things, but otherwise I kind of want you just to take care of stuff. Uh, and so you have to a little bit know not only the type of patient, the type of surgery, but the surgeon who did it and what he or she likes and doesn't like. Yeah. And I, I, I will say in for me in my experience, especially in these more sort of closed issue units where we're really acting as the primary team, um, I, from my perspective, it is much more smooth when you have the more hands-off kind of surgical team because they tell you it's like opt-in for the stuff they care about. They tell you this, that, and the other. Everything else you can kind of assume is your thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, use your judgment. If something weird happens and you want to like, I don't know, they have a DVT, you want to like fully anticoagulate them, maybe check with them or whatever. But you don't need to be like giving potassium and thinking, oh, I, I hope surgery is okay with this. Um, when you have the more hands-on ones, sometimes you don't know. And this is very analogous to working with um, even like attending intensivists who, you know, it if they're kind of cool letting you do your thing that you know how to do, then great. If, if they're more hands-on, sometimes you're not sure what they want to be involved with. Because ultimately, even if they are, quote, very hands-on and they tell you, I want to know everything, whatever, it's not actually possible. Because they're not sitting there at the bedside with you 
all day, every day. So there is a disconnect there, and you, you still have to make decisions on what to involve them with. And if they're just kind of, kind of treating the critical care providers as part of their surgical team, um, often you're not really sure what to do with yourself. Right. Yeah, I think this is one of the big challenges as a non-surgeon for managing surgical patients, right, is, is understanding what do I need to care about, what do they care about, and what do, how much do they need to know or want to know about certain things. You know, when I first started managing surgery patients, I was fortunate in that I came from a thoracic surgery background, so I started with thoracic surgery patients. I understood that very well, but you know, then you throw in a head and neck cancer patient that I've never taken care of as a nurse. Uh, I don't know, really know anything about it. How much stuff's supposed to be coming out of those drains every hour? Should I even care? Should I know about that stuff? Uh, and I think there's two approaches. You can say, well, I'm here to kind of manage the vent, the hemodynamics, et cetera, and I'll leave the rest up to the surgical team. But the practical side of it is most of these surgeons are in the operating room or in their clinic during the day. They're not there eyeballing these patients constantly. So I think it's very beneficial for those of us who are to understand a little bit of that. And so I think one of the things that really helps is having a good working relationship with your surgeons. Uh, and that's where uh, APPs can really be beneficial in that, you know, I manage these patients month after month after month. I'm not a resident rotating on and off the service. Um, I work with these surgeons every day for years. I know them very well. I know what they want. I know what they like. I know what they're going to get mad at. I know what they're going to want to be called about, you know? Um, and I think the second aspect is to get a good understanding of the surgery side of things. So that's kind of tricky sometimes, but I think going back to having a relationship with your surgeon, uh, under, get them to explain some things to you. Or you know, get a good um, get a good book or reference uh, on surgery patients. Um, you know, if there's a specific type of surgery surgical patient you're managing all the time, you can look to their um, their primary stuff. You know, a thoracic surgery textbook is going to cover a lot of this. Um, but you know, shameless plug, real quick. The book that I edited. Concepts in Surgical Critical Care. That's what this came out of, was there wasn't a good sort of quick, easy reference to surgery ICU patients in general. Um, and so that's why we, we put a group of surgical providers together to kind of put that in a Cliff Notes form so that if you're not a surgeon, you're a you're an APP or you're a, a medicine physician, maybe you're a palm crit guy who isn't a surgeon, but you're an intensivist and, and you're man managing these folks to understand a little bit about the surgical side of things. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, ultimately I, I feel like the, especially in these more closed ish models, it tends to work best when the surgeons can be a little more laissez faire, partly because of our role, but also because there is also a critical care attending involved. So even if like we were all happy with, you know, you or I acting as sort of, essentially part of the surgery team and doing stuff and, and discussing it with the surgeons and sort of reporting to them and so on. What about the intensivist? What are they doing in all this? It, it's like they're a, a vestigial organ because there, there's kind of no, 
apparently no need for an intensivist in, in this workflow. And then what if the surgeons want to do like some crazy stuff? And what if the critical care team is the primary team of record, or at least is functioning that way? I mean, isn't that a sort of a conflict? Like the surgeon's like, oh, I want to, um, you know, give them 20 liters of fluid or something like that. Do you just, do you just do that? Is the intensivist just sort of look the other way? <laughs> do they write notes saying things like, I don't agree with this? So it uh, somebody has to step back for it to work smoothly, I, I think. And this is even, um, you know, you were saying some surgeons are also intensivists, but in in these closed models, not at the same time. So if a, if a surgeon who is dual trained as an intensivist operates on a patient and admits them to a surgical ICU, that it, it's maybe like a closed ICU, an intensivist is going to see them, but it's not usually them, unless you have an unusual situation where they're wearing two hats at once or something. Some other intensivist is, is playing that role, and they have to kind of take off their critical care hat, or at least, you know, make sure nothing's being missed, but understand that somebody else is, is doing that part of it right now because obviously people do things differently you pr- you would probably do some things a little differently if you were the intensivist but you're not <laughs> today <laughs> yeah well and i think another thing that makes this challenging is surgical ICU, icu patients i think kind of fall into two broad categories one is the one we all think about that we're all familiar with if you work in a, any ic right it's just the patient who's very sick But the other thing is something that's unique to the surgical world is there are a number of surgeries that require post-operative ICU care just because of the nature of their surgery. These are folks who often fall on somewhat of a little pathway, right? So cardiac surgery is a good example, thoracic surgery, uh, a lot of transplants, liver transplants, lung transplants, heart transplants, et cetera. Um, a lot of our big flap cases, these are folks who they're not terribly sick other than they've just been through a big ordeal in the form of a surgery. And what they really need is some post-op resuscitation and some recovery from that insult of the surgery. That those patients are relatively easy to manage because you can sit down with the surgeons beforehand and say, so this is what they should look like, right? This is what an esophagectomy should look like on post-op day one. And this is what we're going to do with them post-op day two and so forth. And you can sort of manage them. I don't want to make it sound like it's on autopilot, but you can, they, they require less minute to minute input from all parties involved. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's another situation that's not obvious it many surgical patients are like that in the icus some of them are you know surgical catastrophes unstable patients needing resuscitation so of course some trauma patients are like this but many are just scheduled post-op cases and certain kinds of surgeries need icu care for x amount of time after maybe just for the day or the night or something um Maybe because it's a big surgery and they can be unstable, but many times it's just to check on them often. So common ones are are neuro or maybe vascular kinds of things where they need to have like neuro checks every hour. 
or you know check on the extremity they operated on every hour because some percentage of the time there's a complication that needs to be immediately acted on but that's that's a nursing need i'm not checking on the patient every hour so a lot of them are like you said really routine from our perspective and then maybe it makes sense in those cases for them to be mostly managed by the surgical teams if you have a a workflow that works for that now again it depends on a lot of the resources what if the surgical team is is really sort of thin and they don't have either the surgeon or you know residents or apps around who can like take the nurse's call that there's something going on with the patient or even something routine they need an order for something um if they don't have someone to call then maybe you need someone like an icu provider even if it's just to help out with dumb stuff like that or you know what if stuff starts to happen the patient gets a little more unstable or complicated do they then transition to you know being cared for by the critical care team yeah so one of the things that we do is we are the first call on every patient that we're following in the icu so uh you don't call us you don't call thoracic surgery you call us you don't call transplant surgery you call us and we sort of triage those calls and if it's something that is very minor but it falls within sort of the accepted pathway of things, we handle it. If it's something that's minor, but we're not sure exactly what to do because it's, you know, it's outside of the realm of how this normally works, then we usually have a conversation with the surgeons. If it's something major, then that sort of becomes a discussion of, well, is this clearly in our area, right? Is this a vent problem, for example? Uh, is this patient hemodynamically unstable? Um, or is it something that clearly falls into the surgeons, right? This is a drain problem uh, where the surgeons really need to come look at this. Um, and sometimes those overlap, right? The patient's hemodynamically unstable, but we think it's because they're bleeding and maybe they need to go back to the operating room. And so we just find it's very, it's a lot easier if we have the nurses call us for everything uh, and then we kind of filter through and have that discussion with the surgeons rather than the other way around. Yeah. And the other aspect here that I, I think is super important, no matter how you set up your, your workflows is not allowing sort of distribution of responsibility and communication pathways to um, create opportunities for, for missing things or even duplicating things. So even in the somewhat, uh, more open or surgical ICUs I've been in, it was always an understanding or if not a rule that only the person like you or I, usually the ICU, APP, uh, is the person like writing orders for things. Because even if the surgeons have a bunch of stuff they want and orders they want, if they're going and ordering them on their own, probably I don't know about them, which means I'm ordering other things or even the same things because I came to the same conclusions. So now you have different people putting in orders in the same patient at the same time or different times that are conflicting or duplicated. So if the, the surgical team was like, oh, we, we need this or that, they should come to us and either, you know, just tell us and then we'll order it. That's typically it. Or, you know, if it's something obscure that would be annoying or difficult for me to order, I don't care if they order it as long as they, they told me so that I'm not like surprised to find it. Because that's the real problem. You need to have kind of at least one person who knows everything that's going on um, so they can kind of, like you said, filter it all out. And that's not about who's making ultimate decisions. That's just about making sure one person kind of knows everything. Right. 
Yeah. So one thing I usually do when I'm on service is the I will sit down at the very beginning of the day and look at the call sheet and see who's the first call, who's covering these patients for each of my primary services. Now, I'm fortunate I've done this for five years now at this same place. I know pretty much all the surgery residents. Uh, I know all of the APPs on the primary surgery services. Um, And so what happens is I'll usually just shoot somebody a text at the beginning of the day and say, hey, I'm covering your patients in the ICU today. Let me know when you want to touch base and run the list. Uh, Some of our services, like the liver transplant team, we have uh, set up pre-established times. At at 9.30 every day, we're going to gather in the SICU conference room, and we're going to round on all the transplant patients so we can discuss that. Uh, Other services, we don't necessarily because they don't necessarily have patients uh, in the ICU every day. So we just sort of touch base. When, when do you want to run the list? When do you want to talk about stuff? And then we'll text back and forth to each other throughout the day, stuff like that. So you just sort of establish up front, here's who's covering things for the ICU. Here's who's covering things for the primary service. Uh, and let's just make sure that we talk. Now, I mean, what about conflicts? What do you do if you are following a patient for critical care purposes at, you know, as is an intensivist, and as is a surgical team, but the surgeons want something that's very different from what you want. You think something is, is, is important to have done and they don't agree or vice versa, or your approaches are totally divergent. Um, how, do you, how do you sort that out without pissing anyone off, but still taking care of the patient? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I approach that is uh, going back to having a relationship with the surgeon. Um, you know, the first thing I would say is not every fight is worth fighting. So you have to understand and know what is really worth going to bat for, you know? And so a lot of times there may be something that, you know, I feel like this is the way to do it and that they disagree. Uh, but ultimately it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. So we'll just, okay, fine. But there may be something that I go, no, no, this is something worth fighting about. And I think the more you balance those two things, the better this ultimately comes out, right? Because at the end of the day, most of the surgeons I work with know that if I push back on something and say, no, no, I don't want to do that this way. I want to do it this way. They go, well, he doesn't fight and argue with me a lot. Maybe I should listen. Yeah. Obviously, that depends on people having some ability to compromise and sort of to to give and take. And, and like we've been saying, the ability to understand that there are different ways of doing the same thing that are usually ultimately just as good. Um, and I, I think I, I am not a surgeon. I would imagine this can be difficult for them. I think they're used to having really tight control over their patients and what happens to them. Um, so it, I imagine it requires kind of a, a mode switch for them to be like, all right, I'm putting this in the ICU's hands. I'm looking out for just kind of the surgical stuff at this point. But yeah, I've, certainly there are some people whose personality types have a hard time with that. Um, I, I, like, you, like you said, there are definitely a lot of the times where it's just whoever kind of cares the most about something. You know, maybe a surgical team is like, you know, we're going to do this. And I'm like, that sounds weird to me. Or, you know, it's like something that maybe I know is not evidence-based, but it's also not like, there's not evidence against it. <laughs> so like, you know, <laughs> I think that is a, is a critical statement right there. So I have had, um, learners 
with me before, um, you know, some of our APP fellows and uh, even physician residents who have said, you know, when you explain, hey, this is how Dr. So-and-so likes his patients run, blah, blah, blah. They'll say, well, you know, I looked and the guidelines recommend not doing that. And I say, well, yeah, you're right. They do. Um, well, why do we do it? And they want to make a big deal out of it. I said, well, because that's the way they like it done. And although the guidelines say there's no evidence for it, if you really read the guidelines, what they actually say is there's no evidence against it either. So there's a difference between recommending not to do something and not recommending to routinely do something. And in this case, it's something that is likely to cause no harm, but the surgeon who's ultimately responsible for this patient, whose name is on the door, so to speak, wants it done that way. So I will make my pitch, but ultimately I'm not going to fight about it because it's not worth fighting about, right? It's not going to harm the patient. So, okay, it's harmless. Yeah. You know, picking your hills and stuff. And I, I think, uh, it's important to recognize that everybody has their perspectives and biases, and you tend to only see other people's. Um, so you you look at the surgical team and there's like, oh, we want to do this or whatever. And you're like, well, that seems wacky. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it, whatever. But they probably have the same opinion of you in some cases. So, I mean, like a common situation I don't, is I that, don't do anything that's wacky. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes. About. <laughs> I, I too am perfect, uh, but those around me. No, you know, like a classic example, and we um, we did a show with uh, Dennis Kim for trauma not too long ago about this sort of dilemma. Does a patient need surgery? Maybe they're, they're not like dying in front of you, but they're sort of simmering. It looks like maybe they need to have something drained or explored or something. And we'll be like, gosh, it seems like they need surgery. And we'll talk to the surgeons. And they'll be like, eh. We don't really want to do that. And that may drag on for days. Our perspective is like, gosh, this could help them. They should have surgery. Their perspective is like, they don't want to get into this total like crap show of an operation, which is, will take like 10 hours and patient will be wildly unstable and all this stuff. Um, if there's not like a good reason for it. So like, that's a bias from their part. They don't want to do something that sucks. Of course, our bias is the opposite. Like we don't care. We're not going to be in the OR. <laughs> so right, they yeah. like to say, you know, it's the, the courage of the non-combatant. It's real easy to send somebody off to, to do battle for you. Neither of those biases are, are better or worse. They're both biases. And that comes up all the time, I imagine. You know, maybe the surgical team has something they've done for, you know, 10 years a certain way, and it seems to work fine. Now there's like, oh, there's no evidence for it, or maybe there's data. But they're like, well, it's, it's worked good for us. We know that it's you know, at least how to deal with it. That's sort of their perspective. Yeah. You know, okay, sure. You know, the the non-obvious biases here are uh, if the surgical team, whether you're open to close ICU, is going to take care of this patient after they leave, maybe it behooves you to, by and large, use their approaches to things so that they don't have to, like, change it all up the hour they leave the ICU, right? Because they have their approaches. If you have your weird thing they're gonna you're going to do, what are they going to do when you transfer care, you know? Yeah. Or when they're in the outpatient setting, they're going to keep following them in the office. You're not. And, you know, in some ways, the fact that they took a knife and like entered this person's body, it does create a certain, you know, responsibility that is maybe greater than yours. You know, uh, sometimes complications are, are tracked 
and people are are monitored on some of these metrics. Now, I'm not saying that you should like not write down a problem if the patient has it because it goes on someone's record, but you could see how that would sort of mean something different to a surgeon than it might be to you. And you're like, oh, well, maybe this is a surgical infection. And they're like, well, hang on. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's make sure. Well, and that's what I mean by, uh, you know, it's their name on the door, right? Um, when, you know, you, when you walk down the hall and see the patient's name on the door and the uh, surgeon of record his or her name is there. Ultimately things you do may impact them more than the other way around. And so I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Even if again, you know, you look in the chart and it says like an intensivist name or something, it, it's like still, right? Yeah. <laughs> still the surgeon has, has skin in the game here. And again, I'm not saying, you know, take bad care of patients or whatever, but that's not generally what it's about. It's about trying to find common ground on stuff where, of course, there are divergent opinions. Um, and at the end of the day, you, like, you need to find a compromise. Like It, it should be almost 0% of the time where you just have somebody like pulling a rank and being like, well, I'm the attending of record. This is how we're going to do it. Because like, you can do that like once right, <laughs> and then right. like your, your system starts to like come apart at the seams. Cause like, what about the next patient? Yeah. Well, and I think ultimately, ultimately surgeons are very reasonable people. I don't know. I just said that out loud. So all my <laughs> surgery, surgery colleagues are now like hitting, hitting the floor, but I think they are, they're all reasonable people. And, you know, I've explained this to learners before, a lot of times they say things and do things that seem to make no sense. And we go, oh, that's because they're old school or that's how they were trained or they have this particular bias or whatever. But I have found that a lot of times if you just ask them, hey, why do you do it this way? Because I've read this and I've read that and I heard a guy speak and he said this and it all seems like your way is different or backwards or even wrong compared to all that. Um, every time I've ever asked a surgeon that they've come back with a very good explanation. Now I may not agree with it, right? I may not, I may not agree with their rationale, but they have rationale. It's not just willy nilly, uh, you know, wild west because that's how I was taught. Uh, it's a lot of times there's, there's very good rationale behind it. So yeah, you know, maybe the most recent data kind of conflicts with their experience. And it's this, I mean, we have to deal with that too. What do you do in that situation? Is your, are your anecdotes just not painting the whole picture? Or do you do things differently? And that's, what I think, what a lot of people feel like, oh, yeah, there was that study, but I do it different. The way I do this procedure, we don't have that problem, or we do need to do things this way or whatever. And I can't say that's not true. I mean, it's not true for everyone, <laughs> but you can't say it's not true in a certain case. So we have to just kind of try to understand each other. I do think that whether it's by selection or by training, surgeons tend to have a approach to things which is a little more controlling, um, which is probably serves them well in the OR and stuff. But like more medicine types, maybe more tend to more easily kind of uh, compromise and see th things other people's ways. So there is maybe the 
potential for surgeons to kind of steamroll other services like intensivists if if they don't you know intentionally keep it under wraps and i think they people do try to when they understand they're kind of co-managing patients um but again when when they're when they're trying to treat the patient in the way they would if they were the only team involved it does sometimes present these problems and you have to kind of have people pushing back and then hopefully everyone kind of understands where they're at and that sort of thing. But like any time when humans are interacting, there's opportunity for, for conflict. Yeah, absolutely. So much of it depends on your specific, uh, your specific workflows and setup. And of course the people involved and culture and all that kind of soft stuff that, 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 I mean, even just one ICU to the next or one institution to the next, uh, they may have radically different setups just because of historical reasons or what tends to work for them. And then even then, all it takes is one new surgeon or department chair or someone to roll in and the whole thing can, can change. All right, Brian. Well, if that is all we have to say about that, then I think we can call it a wrap and uh, check back in in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds good. See you then.